Please open your Bibles to the New Testament book of James. James chapter 1. We're going to look today verses 1 through 12 as we look at a life of faith. James 1, 1 to 12. Follow along as we read. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. By way of introduction to the epistle of James, it's dated as early as 44 to 49 AD, making it the earliest written letter of the New Testament. The short epistle, it's oftentimes referred to as a New Testament book of Proverbs, as it gives us practical commands to live a life of faith. Some have argued that it's actually lacking in theology, but I would say to the contrary, and as stated by John MacArthur, it's a practical manual for Christian living based on theology. It gives us credence to the phrase, theology is for life. Oftentimes we even hear critics that will quote James, often trying to prove that the Bible contradicts itself. Uh, for Paul says that salvation is by faith alone, and James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Well, I once heard someone say that any fool can find a contradiction, but it takes devotion to find the truth. So when we're devoted to finding the truth of both Paul and James, in their context, you will see that Paul was speaking of how an individual is justified in the sight of God. And James is speaking of how one is justified in the sight of men. Although both are speaking of justification, they are addressing two very different situations. James' concern is how do we know if you and I have genuine saving faith from person to person? And as we study, we will, we will see that James, he makes it abundantly clear that you will know by your fruit. It's by the evidence of how you live your life that reveals if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ or not. Genuine faith. 
true faith will profess Christ, will obey God, and love others. The epistle of James, it is very concise. He is very matter-of-fact. He does not hold back. And even in the beginning, he jumps right to the heart of the matter after a one-verse greeting. And looking at verse 1 as part of our introduction, it, it reveals to us who is talking and, and what the context is. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only other James that this could have been was James, the son of Zebedee. But we know from Acts chapter 12 that Herod had put James, son of Zebedee, to death. So it is well attested to that this James is the half-brother of Jesus. Verse 1 also tells us that the Christian Jews, they were spread out. He addresses them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It is believed, again, that James was writing to those who are mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, right after the stoning of Stephen. Acts eleven nineteen reads, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. This reveals to us that these were real trials of faith, real people. And James calls them, as well as us, to a high view of God in the midst of the trials. Because as we will find out as we move along, the trials serve a godly purpose. With that brief introduction to the epistle, we will turn to our first point in verses 2 through 4, perseverance and trials. Point 1, perseverance and trials. Follow along as we read again 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking and nothing. This is a very familiar passage to many of us. We often like to quote it to others when we're giving guidance or maybe counsel to try and encourage those who are hurting. We are quick to tell others, remember, your trial is a joy. But let's be honest. How often do we quote that passage to ourselves when we're going through a trial or a test? When you are in the midst of a fiery furnace, do you tell yourself, this is a joyous occasion? That's not the first advice we go to for ourselves. We like to point to this passage for others, but we often fail to truly believe it in our own lives. And in, instead, we turn to our emotions, and then we ask the wrong question, why me, God? Why would you do this to me as if we deserve something better? Well, these verses make it very clear that that is wrong thinking. It's a wrong understanding of who God is and is a wrong response for the Christian. James wasted no time. In verse 2, we see the, the first command for all believers. And yes, this is what is referred to as an imperative command, to count various kinds of trials, meaning all kinds of trials, as a joyous occasion. No more than 30 words into the letter, and you're faced with something that is completely counterintuitive to the human mind. Your natural response to 
trials, it is not joy, but we turn to grumbling, crying, anger, and many other emotions that we all go through. But for the Christian, for the believer in Christ, you're to have a new way of thinking, a transformed mind, a mind that understands that for those who love God, all things work together for good. First and foremost, you'll not be able to count these tests and trials of life as, if, as joy if you do not know who God is according to the scriptures. I think oftentimes we are too quick to say, I know God. But as John Calvin once said, your mind is an idol-making factory. The question is, do you know God according to how he has revealed himself in the scriptures? Or have you made up a God in your mind? Have you personally studied the scriptures yourself to understand who God is? Or have you simply relied only upon other people to tell you who they think that he is? You have to ask yourself, Is the God that I serve the one revealed in the scriptures? Do I know what God says about himself and his word? Then, and only then, will you be able to count trials as a joy. Because then you will recognize that there is a good and a gracious and a loving, gentle, and an all-powerful God who is at work in your life through your trials. And notice that verse 2, it does not specify what types of trials. Rather, it actually broadens the range. And it says various kinds. It can be translated as all kinds or every kind, meaning both internal and external. And James will address both throughout his letter. What he is telling us is that for the believer... Every trial in your life, both external and internal, is for a godly purpose. Before I go any farther, I do want to speak to those specifically that are thinking already. You have no idea what I'm going through. Those that are thinking, there's no way that a good God would put me through what I am going through. I understand that, and I hear you. Studying this passage, it has forced me as well to think back over my life, to revisit memories and emotions of things that I never thought that I would be able to make it through. As, as an example, so that you know that I, I hear you and I understand where you're at, after, after our first stillborn, I remember talking with a very close friend. We were standing in his yard And he was sharing with me about his trial of their stillborn. And I remember he said, I would never wish it upon anyone, but I also would not change it. He went on to say, I do not wish that it had never happened because of what God has done through it. Well, just as you're sitting here today thinking that I don't understand how difficult your trial is and that I'm crazy... I thought he was crazy. I thought he was wrong. I thought his counsel was wrong. But through that trial and over time, as I began to seek who God is through his word, 
and understand his goodness and his gentleness and his grace and his mercy, then I began to also say, I would not wish that upon anyone, but I would never wish that it would change. That trial has helped prepare me for the next trial, and it grew me in spiritual maturity. So if you are in the midst of a circumstance, which many of you I know that you are, do not stop listening. Do not ask the question, well, why me, God? But instead, ask, Lord, help me to understand who you are. Help me to understand how you are trying to make me more like Christ. Help me to see your loving grace and your mercy through my trial. You have to take your thoughts captive. And you have to remind yourself of what is true according to God's word. So make sure that you are not relying upon what other people have told you about God. But seek to understand him yourself. If you don't, your faith will not stand the test. And yes, this is a test. James is giving us, right up front here, a test for our lives. It's, it's interesting. It's common practice for us to put things to the test. We test for grade levels, driver's license. Many of you have recently tested for universities to be admitted. There's employment tests, personality tests. We test soil, animals. There's medical tests, athletic tests, reading tests, chemical tests. And many more that some of you are probably thinking of. I could have kept going, but you get the point. We test everything. And when something or someone fails those tests, then we rely upon the results. And we say, sorry, the test has failed. You're not qualified according to the test. But when it comes to testing one's faith, that logic seems to change somehow. And tests all of a sudden become unfair or legalistic. Testing of faith and fighting for holiness becomes viewed as pharisaical instead of biblical. Well, I just want to give you a handful of verses to show you what God's word says about testing your faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Psalm 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 26.2, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Over and over 
and over. Scripture makes it clear that the Christian life is a life of test to reveal and purify true faith in Christ. The letter of James, it is test after test that we and you are to examine your life against to see and know if you are of the faith. Do your thoughts, do your words, do your actions reveal that you are truly of the faith in Jesus Christ? We're not to look back on that day that you said a prayer or a day that maybe you were baptized. But Scripture tells us that we are to test our life day after day, year after year, and see if you practice sin or if you practice righteousness. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James makes it clear that how you live your life will reveal whether or not you have true saving faith. The first test that he gives us is to examine your life in the times of trials. Trials and testing, they reveal both the impurities and the purities. As I was finishing seminary, I was still working in human resources, and I actually worked at a surface gold mine And I had the opportunity to visit their refinery one day. I watched them take the the pulverized ore, which looked like nothing but dust and dirt, and they heated it up to extreme temperatures to the point where it, it looked like glowing lava. And then they began to pour it out of the crucible. And as it poured over in the top basin, and it worked its way down to the stair step basins, each time it flowed over, It was pushing out the impurities. And it left at the top the precious metals of gold and silver. That material was put through the test of fire and it was refined to that of what was precious. And that is a picture of why every Christian is to consider trials and testing a joyous occasion. Because the heat of your trials They purify your faith. And when you are poured out as a drink offering, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Proverbs 17.3 The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Your faith is tested and it is purified by the trials that God puts in your life. And when we think of it that way, why would we not want to count that as joy? Again, knowing that a good, loving, gracious Father is caring for us. He is trying to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory. And I want to make sure we don't miss this point as well. The the testing of your faith is actually evidence that you have faith. The testing of your faith is evidence that you have faith. Because God refines and he purifies and he sanctifies his own. So in times of trial, do you trust and rely upon God? Do you turn to the truth of his word or do you put your trust in the world? This is a very practical test for us 
to put our life through. I believe verses 2 through 4 set the stage for the entire letter of James, which over and over he is pointing us to maturity and faith, that it is being developed and proven by the trials in our life. As one commentator stated, and I quote, perseverance in trials has at its ultimate outcome believers who are mature and complete, not lacking anything. That is the reason that we consider trials as a joyous occasion. Because the testing of your faith, as it tells us, it produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is not a passive submission to your circumstances, meaning this is not just sitting back and riding in the lazy river of life, enjoying your time, but rather this steadfastness, it is active endurance. It is a persistency of actively enduring in a Christ-like manner so that it may take its full effect. James clearly tells us God brings these difficulties into a true believer's life for a purpose. And we are commanded to respond in joy as we know and understand that God is refining his own to bring you to maturity in Christ. God's purpose and God's goal is to make us grow in his likeness. But the test forces us to ask, what is your goal? What is my goal? If your goal is to succeed in sports or have a good job, to be financially well off, or maybe for people just to like you or to obtain a certain standing in this world, then your trials, they're going to devastate you. If your goal is simply to fix your circumstance for ease of life so that you can remain floating in that lazy river, then prepare for a life of constant frustration and unholiness. I would be remiss if I didn't address all of the parents in the room. As a parent myself, I've had to reflect upon this. If your goal for your children is for them to be successful in this world or for them to be like all the other kids that are running from event to event, instead of teaching them who God is through his word, then you're preparing them for a life of frustration and unholiness. But, If your goal is to know God and to be conformed to his image through all circumstances, then you can count your trials as joy because you know that they are moving you towards the goal of Christ's likeness. Trials can only be a joy when Christ's likeness is your goal. So believers, count your trials as joy knowing that they prove genuine faith and perfect genuine faith. Two to four gives us the command to test and to count trials as joy. But what do you do when you examine your life and you realize that you're lacking in the trials of life? Well, we can't disconnect the following verses. James is giving us practical advice for facing our tests. In verses 5 through 8, we come to point 2, perseverance and faith. Perseverance and faith. 
Let's read 5 through 8 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Verses 5 through 8 are connected to verses 2 through 4 through one word, lack. Verse 4 states, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Uh, Many translations actually will read, but if any of you lacks wisdom. And that kind of helps to highlight the connection between the verses. We're told in 2 through 4 to look forward to the day when we will stand complete lacking in, uh, lacking in nothing. But 5 through 8 quickly reveals to us that the reality is the here and now. That we are not yet perfect. And we still lack the wisdom that is necessary to respond appropriately to our trials. And as I said, I know that many of you are in the heat of varying circumstances and saying to yourself, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Well, these verses, they're telling you that you must turn to God for both the internal and outward wisdom to endure your trial of faith. If we think logically about this, we know that the purpose in the trials of our faith are to refine us and to purify us, to add maturity to us. Well, that would not be necessary if we already had the godly wisdom that we need in life. Another way to think of this maybe is you know someone that knows their Bible really well. You would say that they are a knowledgeable person of the Scriptures. But do they know how to apply it to life? Do they know how to understand the world around them? Does it guide their thoughts? Does it guide their actions and their words? Then that knowledge has passed over to wisdom. We have to realize that no matter how much effort that we put into gaining knowledge, that it does no good for us if it does not move to wisdom, if it does not move to practical application and how we think, talk, and act. And that is why we have to ask God, who gives generously. Listen to how one commentary describes it. This, this was very helpful for me in processing through these verses. Quote, he says, Our own wisdom grows through three different factors, knowledge, perspective, and experience. Our limitations in all three of these areas lead to limited wisdom. When we walk through trials, we realize that we don't know all that is going on. That's limited knowledge. We don't see our situation from every angle. Limited perspective. And we oftentimes lack experience in what to do. Limited experience again. God, on the other hand, possesses all knowledge. He has an eternal perspective. And in Christ, he has experienced every kind of test and prevailed. You see, the bad news of the truth is that we will always be limited in some sense. We will always be limited in the areas of experience, of perspective, and knowledge. 
But the good news, the good news of the truth is that we're told we can go to God and that we should ask God and realize that He is a God who gives generously. The spiritual perfection that is the goal of your trials will be achieved only when divine wisdom is present. And I want to make sure that we we don't overcomplicate what the text is saying. Wisdom, again, it is practical theology. The letter of James that is practical to our life. The wisdom that he's speaking of is the ability to apply what you know to the problems of life. The readers are facing some real problems arising from real situations. And it's the gift and application of wisdom to see these trials in their proper light and respond accordingly. They needed wisdom to act just as much as we need wisdom to act today. So how do you practically apply what you know to be true about God, what you know to be true about Christ and yourself to every trial that you face? Well, verse 5 gives us, again, two practical truths to face these trials. And they're so obvious, but they are important because many of you cannot see through the circumstances of your current trial. When we're in that fiery furnace, our thoughts are, are cloudy. We can't think properly. So this helps bring us back and reminds us of the truth of God's word. Verse 5, it first reveals that you and I both need that wisdom to persevere through each trial. You're not equipped or capable to do it alone. Men, speaking to you as a man, we need wisdom on how to apply what we know. Ian Bounds said that our pride of learning is against the dependent humility of prayer. Our pride of learning is against the dependent humility of prayer. In simplistic terms, men, we think that we know it all. And that's why we struggle to pray and admit our dependence upon God. We rely upon our own limited wisdom instead of turning to God's unlimited wisdom. Each one of us here today need divine wisdom as we go from trial to trial. The second practical truth that we see in verse 5, it reveals that there is only one place to seek that wisdom. And again, you might be quick to say, well, that's obvious. But if it's so obvious, then why do you seek wisdom from the world? Why do you seek advice from those who clearly do not follow God or maybe blatantly deny who God is? Why do you seek advice from worldly counselors that deny God? Why do you turn to horoscopes, astrology, enneagrams, and things of the like? None of these are from God. Why do we say that God is sovereign, but then we speak of life as if it's a game of luck or of fate? That is not speaking of a sovereign God who possesses both the heavens and the earth. All of these things deny what God is telling us in these verses. Where does wisdom come from? James tells us. He makes it very clear. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Well, what does wisdom look like in our life? Look, 
Flip over to chapter 3, verse 17. What does wisdom look like? 317. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We need godly wisdom for how to practically live our life in the midst of these tests. And that wisdom comes from God alone, through his word alone, nothing else. We have to remember that scripture is sufficient, as it says, to make man and woman of God complete, equipped for every good work. And the good news, again, is that he generously gives wisdom to those who ask. But there is a caveat. There is a caveat. You must ask in faith with no doubt. Verses 6 through 8, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The idea of God giving generously and believers asking with no doubt, it brings forth the idea, the only thing I could picture is of a, a one-way, single-lane road with no turns. One way, single lane, no turns. It is straight and narrow. And what this is revealing to us is that firsthand, God has an exclusive preoccupation to give generously to those who call upon him in faith. And secondly, it reveals the necessity for you and I to be single-minded. That we have to have complete devotion to Christ through faith. Single lane, single direction, no turns. Your faith in the character of God should be the exclusive preoccupation of your mind. Just as he is exclusively concerned to bring you to spiritual maturity. If you doubt, you're not doubting whether God will provide. You're ultimately doubting the character of who he is. God says that he gives generously. Do you doubt his character? Do you doubt his faithfulness to those whom he loves? A double-minded man, it gives us the picture of a, a two-faced person, we might say, talking out of both sides of their mouth. Uh, a person trying to serve two masters, of which Jesus said of himself in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The consequence that we see here of this doubt is that you will constantly be tossed back and forth, going one way and then another, back and forth, gaining no wisdom, nor reaching spiritual maturity. So according to the context, you're then proving your lack of genuine saving faith in Christ. Practically, I will again ask, what is your goal? Is your goal to obtain Christ-likeness or status in the world? To obtain treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? Are you exclusively preoccupied with Christ? 
Or maybe you're just wishing that your trial would end so that you can move on to the next thing and continue as you are, which you will be tossed back and forth, incomplete, lacking in wisdom, unstable in all your ways. So again, examine your life. Examine your trials and how you respond. Are you exclusively occupied with Christ, asking in faith, believing that he will provide wisdom because he is a covenant-keeping God? Or does your life reveal that you are like that wave, tossed back and forth, double-minded, just going from one event to the next event, never growing, never changing? Well, we've seen perseverance in trials. We've seen perseverance in faith. And now we come to perseverance in contentment. Perseverance in contentment. Verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also... Will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James, sometimes we struggle reading James because it seems like he moves from one thing to the next with very little explanation. And at first, you may not see the connection to the previous verses. But again here, James is contrasting various trials that we face in life. He is addressing the the full spectrum from oppression to wealth. And, And he's reminding us that all are dispersed, that their hope is not, and what they own. I love how Alec Matir says this. In describing these verses, he's talking about the contrast that James is giving us. And quote, he says, To his financial adversities, the poor brother says, But how rich I am. To his earthly glories, the rich brother says, But what a wretch I am. Each keeps life in the perspective of eternity. End quote. See, the poor man, he boasts and the grace and mercy of God for the kingdom that is to come. The rich brother also boasts in the grace and mercy of God for the kingdom that is to come. You may be in poverty. You may be in great wealth. Either way, both will bring with them trials that you must recognize as God working in your life to purify you. And both are called to boast in God. And for those who are financially in need, we shouldn't be so quick to think that great wealth will solve all of our problems. On the contrary, uh, Scripture is clear that great wealth actually brings with it a great threat to a committed life with God. And this becomes apparent as James himself, he gives even greater warning to the rich. He says, those that are wealthy, be careful that you're not relying upon worldly treasures, but instead be humble, realizing that it's by God's grace, and now you're called to be faithful with what he has blessed you with. So boast in Christ, not in your earthly riches that will perish. 
Verse 11 makes it abundantly clear that those who put their trust in worldly wealth, they will fade away. Each individual here today represents a varying circumstance. We come here with different backgrounds, different families, different educations, different levels of health, and even varying levels of faith. The point is that each of us, in our varying circumstances, are varying trials that we must rejoice in them. We must boast of Christ in them. For that is the test and the proper response of the true Christian. We cannot continue to look at our circumstances through the lens of the world. Our first response is to compare each other to ourselves. We, we start comparing one another. Women, wives, mothers, daughters. Stop comparing yourself to one another. Men, husbands, fathers, sons. Stop comparing yourself to others. Christ is the only thing that we are to compare ourselves to. And newsflash, every one of us fall exponentially short. That wasn't my notes. That was, that was extra. <laughs> Through divine inspiration, James chose to contrast poverty and wealth. But don't miss the point. That's, that's not the only thing he's speaking of. The, the point is that he's talking about trials of various kinds. So this applies also to loneliness and companionship, life and bereavement, work and unemployment, to children and infertility, to health and sickness. It applies to any trial that you are in. They are divinely appointed for the purpose of Christian maturity. So in them, do not lose sight of who God is and what his purpose is through them. We have to keep our eyes focused on the goal of letting steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, in verse 12, it relates everything right back to verse 2. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He is again telling us that the trials that you face are for the purpose of producing steadfastness, meaning that you stood the test of faith, and when it's had its full effect, God makes you perfect, lacking in nothing, and he rewards you with the crown of life. Not by your works or because of your works, but only through genuine faith and Jesus Christ that stood the test. So what test are you in right now? Are you counting it as joy? Are you trusting that God is using it to purify your faith and to bring you to maturity? Are you asking for wisdom without doubting the nature of God? Or are you being tossed like a wave back and forth? Are you trusting in your wealth? Or are you boasting in humbleness of his grace and of his mercy that was enacted through the death, burial, 
resurrection and ascension of Christ. All of these things are so that we examine our life to see if we are truly of the faith. You say, I have faith, but what does your life reveal? Again, the test is not a prayer, it's not a baptism, it's not attending church. The test is evidence of a lifelong fulfillment of faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good and gracious God. The Lord has a what was prayed earlier that you have predestined your own, you have chose them, and Lord, not only that, but you work to refine your own. What a good and gracious and loving God that you are. Even after we continually fall short and turn to things in this world instead of to you, you are faithful to bring us back. Lord, I know that there are many trials that are being faced today. Lord, may they have clear thinking and reminding themselves of what the truth of your word says. May they take every thought captive and turn to you. And Lord, as we examine our lives today according to your word, it will reveal to us some that have true faith and some that may not. I pray, Lord, for those who realize that they are not of genuine faith, that they would turn to Christ today. That today would be the day of salvation. That they would confess and repent. They would turn to you. Thank you, Lord, for putting us through the trials to bring us to completion. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.